So I'm going to continue with the current series that we're looking at Philippians. And uh, I don't know about you, but I really like to, to go into these in-depth studies in the Bible and, you know, un- unpack the scripture, you know, in that way. So it's very cool to, to go into in-depth study because you might have read something 70 times, but when you go into that sort of deep study, you always find something else. There's always something else. It really is a living word, isn't it? So when we look at the context and the audience, it becomes brand new and, the, and, the, and very fresh again. So I love that. So as a, as a little bit of a recap, um, John spoke a couple of weeks ago about finding joy. And he explained that at the time of writing his letters, Paul was imprisoned. Okay, and he was, you know, and then later on, he was under house arrest. So what seemed like a really rubbish situation for him, and let's face it, prison 2,000 years ago is not going to be like prison now, is it? It's going to be a little bit different. And uh, it must have been really grim. Um, They didn't even feed you. You had to rely on people to come, you know, kind-hearted people, family, friends, to come and find you and give you your food um, and clothing and blankets and things like that. There weren't any beds or bathrooms or anything like that. There weren't any lights. They might have had a bit of a fire. But when it was dark, it was dark. And obviously no TV or recreational facilities. But someone, and this just jumped out at me the other day actually, praise God, somebody decided to bring some paper to Paul and some writing implements to him because he wouldn't have had any access to it. Paper was a luxury. It was painstakingly made. They didn't waste paper. It was papyrus, papyrus, whichever way you want to say it. And, uh, And it's not like you could just nip out and buy a notepad. Nobody did that then. You know, not that many people could read or write. Paper was a luxury, it was precious. And I didn't really think to appreciate that person before putting this talk together who went out of their way to buy expensive paper and writing materials and bring it to Paul several times. How many letters did he write? Quite a few. Um, And, you know... I think it could have been, because he speaks about him quite a bit in this book, um, a a guy called Epaphroditus. He was uh, actually sent by the church of Philippi to take care of Paul's needs while he was in prison. But he lived like a 52-day walk away, so it, it was quite a long long way to, for him to go and he I've got this hunch that he was the one who brought, because he'd been sent to take care of his needs, um, you know, the paper, and there wouldn't have been pens, there would have been quills or whatever. I don't know. He was, uh, he was definitely the one who took the letter back to Philippi when Paul sent him home. But do you think he would have realised just what an important job that was? He'd have thought he'd got the most lowliest task, really. Oh, I've been sent off to, you know, 52 days' walk to go and look after Paul the prisoner... You know, he didn't know that what he did by taking the paper and the, and, and the writing implements, that it would change the world. You know, that small act of kindness of him going and doing that and laying out money for the, for the papyrus, 
it changed the world. It had that knock-on effect. So yes, Paul from prison and under house arrest as well later on, he turned out most of the New Testament through those letters. And, um, <clears throat> and they all point to salvation in Jesus and that discipleship that follows that. But he would not, Paul wouldn't, have wasted any sort of precious ink, would he, on writing stuff that he didn't believe in. He wouldn't have wasted all that time. He wouldn't have wasted the paper, you know, on something that wasn't a fundamental in his life. And still, he wrote about joy. You know, and, you know, I, I believe that every word that he wrote down needs to be read because he needed to write it. And he, I think it was all prayed over and it was measured and meant something. And so we need to weigh up what's written. And if it's repeated, if there's a repeat of it, like joy is a repeated theme in Philippians, then we need to look deeper because God might want you to grasp something. So, yeah. So Paul, he wrote about all the positives and he did it all from a posture of prayer and thanksgiving. He showed us to remember when we're in times of stress, God's past victories in our lives. We learn to look forward to what God will, will do and to love what he's doing right now. That's what John was speaking on the other week. He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. What God starts, he finishes. I'm so glad about that. I don't want to stay where I am right now in, in my faith. I want to grow and continue in it because we're here for a purpose, aren't we? And then last week we heard that we're citizens of heaven. We must walk in unity and humility, one spirit, one heart, one church, one mind, becoming more like Jesus as we pursue him, spend time with him and know him. And I love that analogy that John brought about the orchestra, how everybody's got their parts to play alongside each other with Jesus as the conductor. Amazing. So I'm not going to repeat it all, but it's really good stuff. And you can watch it. You know, you can listen to it on the podcast, not watch it. We're not there yet. But we can hear it on the podcast. So, so now we reach Philippians 3, and there's like 21 verses. I'm not going to go into very deep things on all 21, just a few. But let's read it through, and we'll look at what he's saying. So from the uh, ESV version. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ." Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So let's just pray. Father God, please send your Holy Spirit to open up your word to us as we study what you're saying through your servant Paul. Help us to understand and apply it and share through our lives. Teach us your ways, God, and be honoured through this message. In Jesus' name, amen. So right at the beginning of this chapter, Paul says he never tires of saying, rejoice in the Lord. In other versions, it says, be glad in the Lord or be full of joy in the Lord. And with each chapter and every breath, it seems Paul just reiterates joy. It's hard to think that he's in prison. You forget that he's in prison when you read in the letter. And rejoicing, gladness, fullness of joy repeated constantly throughout. And in the NIV translation, it says this, Philippians 3 verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Now, this could mean that what he's writing is a safeguard, if it's followed, or rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard. Now, I think it's both. Because to rejoice in the Lord is to worship him, isn't it? And... Joy in the Lord is a safeguard. Worship is a safeguard, that's what it says. But why? Because when we've got a lifestyle of worship, when we put God first, when, it's, when our lives are dedicated to God and we magnify God, we elevate him far above our lives and our circumstances. And things don't touch us like they would if we didn't have God. But you know what? When we put our pride away and God's first and there's, there's no confidence in the flesh because our confidence is in the Lord, 
that worship is a safeguard to us. He says he'd hem us in around us, didn't he? And Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all our needs will be taken care of. Seeking God is worshipping God. It's living that lifestyle of worship, isn't it? And so all our needs, all our everything, desires, everything will be taken care of. And the last time, oh, let me move it. The last time I stood here and spoke, I spoke about a guy called Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat. And he took, he, he was told to go and meet three armies that were coming against him. And he was like, what do I do, God? I didn't expect this. And God said, send out the worshippers first. And they went out first. And as they worshipped on the way to the battle, God took care of it. They didn't even have to fight. They all turned on one another. And maybe the army of the Lord himself came along and took care of things. But they didn't have to fight. None of their men were killed. They still took the spoils of the battle. All their needs were taken care of, and they didn't have to fight. The battle was the Lord's. So right from the first verse in this chapter, Paul tells us to rejoice, have joy. It's safety for us. Put God first. The Philippians knew exactly where Paul was. They knew the conditions he was living in. It's the reason they sent Epaphroditus to take care of him. He's sending, and he sends the message back that he was living in this supernatural joy, the fruit of the Spirit. And that, that because it's a fruit of the Spirit, it transcends all that sort of natural stuff, all the trials and the sufferings that we, we all have in this life, because that sort of joy is unshakable because we can trust God. It's available through faith in Jesus. But it's also a, a choice to take hold of it and to walk in it. He could quite have easily said, you know, what have I got to be joyful for right now? You know, that's probably what I would have done. What am I, you know, what should I be thankful for? What should I be joyful for? If I was sat in prison, you know, for doing the right thing, you know, I might, I might say that. But Paul was like, no, I've got joy. Let's all have joy. If I can have joy in this prison, then you can have joy outside of prison. You know, but he chose joy. He chose to continue to worship despite the circumstances. And that's sometimes really tough to hear when we're facing stuff. You know, especially when we're facing crisis after crisis and you know, and sometimes it's a pressure to smile when you don't feel like smiling. And, you know, that's not genuine. So you don't have to do it that way. We're not sweeping hardships under the carpet. It's not what Paul means. Paul means that even though things come against us, we still have the joy of knowing that God is in control. You know... I mean, when we pretend that we're something we're not, when we're not genuine, it just takes us longer to get where God's leading us to. So, you know. But this joy, it's a fruit of the Spirit, born out of faith, coming from a transformed spirit. It doesn't depend on our circumstances. It's not an, emo it's not an emotion. It's not like happiness. Although they can go hand in hand, but happiness and joy are different. 
Joy comes from a grateful heart. And it doesn't usually happen overnight. Fruit doesn't grow overnight, does it? In some, ca- in some cases, things can change suddenly for us. But when it comes to fruit, and the fruit of the Spirit in particular, that develops and grows and ripens as our character is dealt with deep down in the roots. You know, and as we, as we spend time with each other, because iron sharpens iron, we learn from one another. We learn about ourselves, when, how we are with one another as well, don't we? And I, I love the fact that the Bible uses gardening and farming and all those terms. Because, you know, I don't mind a bit of gardening. I, and I grew up around farms. And my son Sam is a keen gardener, so that's all I hear all the time. Keen gardener. But like a few years ago, he was a little boy, a few years ago, um, I bought what could only be described as a gnarly twig from Woolworths. It was that long ago. And I bought it because the tag on this gnarly twig said it was a grapevine. And I was a bit, oh, a grapevine, I'll have that, you know, from Woolies. Muscat grapes, apparently, although it's I think it is, because the, uh, it's that old that the actual plastic disintegrated. So, yeah. But muscat grape is a white wine grape. And for about five years, the grape, the vine grew, and it all sort of spread out a bit, and nice leaves, no fruit, anything like that. Just this big twig growing around, and all these, like, leaves. I'm like, okay happily wound its way up this trellis. And I didn't see a grape or anything like that, but the roots were going deeper and the thing was growing. And I thought, well, one day it might might give me a grape or something. But I thought, well, you know, we probably live in the wrong climate for grapes. You don't hear of, you know, vineyards in Snantans, do you, really? So I thought, well, whatever. Yeah, they should do. (laughs) But there were new shoots all over it. And anyway, Sam... During this time, he's growing up and he's learning about his garden and he likes his little hobby and what have you, which has become more of a passion, which is great. And he stood there one day, I looked out at the back and he stood there looking at the grapevine like this, like an old man, <laughs> like this. And, um, and he stared at it and I watched him staring at it like this. And then all of a sudden he, he, he stepped forward and he started going, pinch, 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 pinch. Pinch, pinch, like pulling it all apart. And it was left then by, it was back to being a gnarly twig, but a longer one, right? Just, and I was like, oh, what's it doing? There's like all these leaves all over the floor and like a branch on this like wall. It looked bald. Anyway, and I thought, what's it doing? Leave him, leave him. So anyway, I couldn't believe he butchered the plant. And he went, don't worry, I know what I'm doing, I've been researching. I was like, right. But do you know what, the next year, we got so many grapes, these big bunches of grapes that we had to build like a, a wire support thing so that they could all just hang down in the corner. It was absolutely beautiful and it still does it and it's been doing it ever since. And it's just, I mean, we can't even eat them because they're more like wine grapes, you know. They're just like hang and they look so good. I've been watching the birds come and eat from it this week, this week, actually. 
But the point, my point of talking about that is we can be growing. We can be growing, we can be reading, we can be getting watered. Uh, all our branches are like flinging out everywhere. Roots are going deep. But we're not putting on any fruit. And Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. So we can be doing all that, but then there's no love, there's no joy, there's no peace, there's no patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, or self-control. Because we've not chosen to allow our character to be shaped. So if we don't allow the Holy Spirit full access into our lives to the points where he can prune and snip, snip, snip and train and tend us and develop our character, if we suddenly go, yeah, well, I'm reading the Bible, I've got it all together, do you know what? Knowledge just puffs up, just makes us proud. We might know the word, but if we haven't got love, it's meaningless. It'll be pride and law that we'll be showing people, and that's hard. It, it won't be love. And we all know people like that, don't we? And probably we've been like that ourselves sometimes. I know I have. But, you know, I remember once um, I was studying English at university, and one of the books we had to study was The Handmaid's Tale. don't know that you've heard of it. It's on Netflix now or something. I've not watched it, but I've read the book. And there's no opting out, is there, when you've got to study it for your exams and things like that. You, you, you've got to read it. It's part of the syllabus. And we had to read it, study it, write an essay, all that kind of stuff. And I sort of vaguely knew that there was this distorted image of the church in it and that the author, she'd not really painted Christians in a very good light at all and maybe, you know... I was like, I don't really want to read this. And I, I, I just wrestled with that whole thing for a bit. And I just prayed. I said, God, I believe you've put me on this course. I believe you wanted me to do it. I, I believe that he'd opened the door for me to do it. Um, so I prayed for wisdom. I was feeling a bit trapped. But then I, I feel like God gave me an answer in my prayers. Um, it was quite amazing. It was like a light came on. And it was that the church portrayed in the book was a church without love. It was a church without God. It was what the church would look like if it was all knowledge and no heart. And it was a picture of the church without God in the centre and when I saw it from that perspective, it was like a light came on. And I, I, I got this big, massive release of freedom. And I read it. I loved the book. The book's amazingly well written. But I saw it correctly. It wasn't against the church at all, not the true church. It was a, against a form of church without the godliness, you see. And we've seen that through the ages, haven't we? So... I can go on and on and on, but, you know, Christians, you know, I'm not against any church or any denomination at all. There are spirit-filled Christians in most of them, but somewhere along the walk, some people stop allowing God to be their God, 
and they stop allowing themselves to be pruned. Okay, and then we stop empathizing, don't we? But the opposite of joy, I was looking through the dictionary, the opposite of joy is misery. And, you know, we don't want to be the opposite of what God asks us to be, do we? You know, and like the opposite of joy is misery or depression. The opposite of peace is hatred and disharmony. And, you know, I could go through all of the fruits of the Spirit and what the opposites are, but that would be a completely different message. It would take a lot of time, and it's probably a bit depressing to do, so don't want to do that. Um, Because we can easily guess the opposite of patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So we don't want to dwell on that. But what, what I'm trying to say is let the Holy Spirit shape our character. Humble yourself before God and put him first. When we're grateful for the grace of God, when we put our confidence in Jesus and not in our flesh or our works, the fruit can begin to grow. And one of those fruits is joy. And Paul, he had like more reasons than most to be proud of who he was. He could be forgiven for thinking that his salvation was something to do with his upbringing from the tribe of Benjamin or his achievements and his knowledge. He was a Pharisee, an expert. I mean, we look at, we think of the word Pharisee now and we think, oh, right, well, you know, they, they're bad people. But in those days, they were experts in the Jewish faith. And he said, all that counted as nothing for the sake of Christ. He said in verse 8, he considered them all rubbish that I may, may gain Christ. Others say, other versions say less than nothing. That's the polite version, or garbage. But the original King James Version, that says dung. Can you believe it? He's literally talking about his own achievements and life as dung. That's how worthless they are to him, as he writes that. Because what he's saying is that putting confidence in our flesh to save us is in direct opposition to putting our faith in Christ. Our own righteousness is nothing compared to the righteousness that comes from God. And that's another common theme, isn't it, throughout the Bible. God warns us time and time again to put no confidence in our flesh, but have confidence in him. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And Psalm 118 verse 8 says this, It is better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in man. And that verse, apparently, is the centre verse of the Bible. Did you know that? It's amazing. Unless you're Catholic, they've got an apocrypha and stuff, haven't they, as well. But in the normal sort of general Bible, without the apocrypha, that's the central verse of the Bible, Psalm 118, verse 8. So why does he feel so strongly about this? In verse 9b, um, It says, for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith, counting on Christ alone. We can't make ourselves right with God. Only Jesus can do that. So we need to build our faith first. So number one, rejoice, worship God. That's a safeguard. And number two, put your confidence in God and not the flesh. And then number three is press on. 
He says this, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I love that. When we think we've got it or when we feel that we've got stuck or even when we fall, just keep moving. Every time I think of that, I think of Finding Nemo when she, when she says, just keep swimming. You need to watch it if you've never seen it. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, step forward, keep going, keep moving. Don't take your eyes off the goal. There might be obstacles, things might come against you. Just keep going, press on. There's always more to take hold of, more to learn more people to love. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Looking back's going to hold you back. It's going to slow you down. It's good to remember the past victories of God. That's the right thing to do. That's not what Paul means. He means looking back at our own failures, looking back at what's gone wrong. That's not going to do us any good at all. Looking back at what we think we've missed is going to keep us from attaining what's there for us and the best so keep moving and Paul says straining forward and that doesn't sound easy does it straining forward but I'm sure if I mean is Victoria here I don't think she's here but you know but she'd be able to tell you that after straining forward to reach the end of that London marathon You know, reaching the end was worth it. The goal is so much more worth it, isn't it? The prize is better than anything that we can imagine. The achievement is worth that hard slog getting there. So verse 16, Paul says, Only let us us hold true to what we have attained. And the NIV version says, Only let us live up to what we have already attained. We're saved. We need to live like we're saved. So, you know, and and we need to be genuine, like I said before. It just means don't be anything that you're not. Be yourself. Go with what you know. So, yes, it's good to remember the past victories of God in your own life and in others. It's right to look at how far you've come and look how far you've grown. It's not by our own strength, but because of the Holy Spirit teaching us, guiding us, leading us. Let's keep a kingdom mentality. Learn to get rid of the earthly mentality. It's a very poor second. You are sons and daughters of the living God. It's so easy to join in with the complaining that's going on all around us, especially when there's so much to complain about. And who doesn't love to wallow in a good moan? We all do, don't we? I think it's part of human nature. There's something oddly comforting in those types of conversations where we're in a bit of moan. But do they do us any good, really? I don't think so. All that happens that after we've enjoyed our good moan, we start worrying or we start getting cynical, which hardens the heart. And we love a little less. Do we pray for those we've complained about? It's unlikely unless we've been convicted by the Lord. So let's pray that when we do get into that type of thinking, and we will, and that kind of conversation, because we will, that God will help us to change the direction of it. 
that we get the wisdom. Use them instead as jump-off points to signpost hope. I didn't realise that the first candle was hope when you said, you know, before this. You know, to signpost hope in our living God, our Saviour. It's he, him who we put our trust in anyway. So we can use those times to turn it around and speak gratitude for how God's helped us. If you can feed Elijah using ravens twice a day, twice a day he can feed us. If he can feed an entire nation of people, manna and quail in the wilderness and keep their shoes from wearing out, then he can look after our every need, can't he? Do you know, I, I visited Sinai. We went on holiday to like Sharm El Sheikh and then we went into the Sinai as a little excursion. And um, oh my gosh, it's not sand, that wilderness. It's gravel. It's the harshest terrain I've ever seen. And it's like hard granite gravel as well. I mean, how their shoes lasted 40 years. I mean, how their shoes lasted a week is beyond me. Never mind, I couldn't believe it. It was the first thing I thought of when I felt that gravel underfoot. He keeps the worshipper safe from harm. He brought water out of a rock. He turned water into wine. It's not just our basic needs that God wants to take care of. He's extravagant towards us. So worship should be the start of all we do. I keep going back to worship. He died so that we could live. He's not going to allow us to starve or freeze to death. In the midst of the lack and the worry and the grumbling and complaining, remember God's infinite goodness and praise him. Paul goes on to implore the Philippians to take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. And I mean, remember when Christians ran away from everything that screamed formula? You know, everyone used to just go, oh, it's a formula. It's not genuine or whatever. But, you know, sometimes there is a formula. Sometimes there is a pattern. And we have to just get used to that. And then, you know, our thinking, our heart might, you know, follow suit. Remember when, when Ruth, now I might get the word wrong, when Ruth spoke about the dendrites, is it dendrites or dandrites? Dendrites. Those Thought trees, okay? And I mean, they are a real scientific thing. It's not, you know... And, it, and, it, and about changing those thought patterns in our minds. We had to create new thought patterns to be able to... Am I doing this right? To be able to do that and get away from the negative thought patterns. That's always stuck with me. I thought it was a great teaching. And Paul sets out a pattern for us... And as we practice it, it becomes a new lifestyle, a new way of thinking. It's like a lifestyle of worship that then drops into the heart. It all starts with that choice. I remember praying for help as I first, I probably spoke about this before, as I first began worship leading years ago. God showed me this picture as I was praying of, um, of a dirt path in a dense forest. And he said, create a path of worship to me. It was really simple, but it speaks on lots of levels. Because once a dirt path is cleared, 
only walking it daily will compact the ground and stop anything from growing over it again. The minute we stop, the weeds, the vines and leaves and stuff like that will grow over it again. And it'll be harder to use it. If we create that path of worship, others can follow that path as well. There's no standing still. Each day I should be visiting God, walking that path, worshipping and developing my relationship with him because that's where I'm going in that worship. It's not just walking up a path to nothing. I'm going to God in that path of worship. So number one, rejoice, worship God. Number two, put your confidence in God, not the flesh. Number three, press on, keep moving forward. And then number four, which we've just said, follow the pattern set out in the Bible. If we really want to become more like Jesus, then it's here that we find in the Bible the blueprint. Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word to us and forgive us for where we've got into that complaining mentality of the world. Help us to see ourselves as you do and to make the choice to rejoice in you and to worship you. Help us to follow the pattern you've set out in your word. And I pray that through living that lifestyle of worship and hope, others will see our joy and peace and come to want to know you as well. In Jesus' name.